Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. All right, please, uh, please find your seat. And we're going we're gonna to get started with the end of Revelation. Please open your, your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Today is uh, Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we remember when Jesus entered Jerusalem and how he entered, uh, mounted on a donkey, and how um, the crowds of Jerusalem, they were receiving him with great joy and with great enthusiasm, and they were shouting Hosanna, which means save or save us or save now or something along those lines. Um, What I find interesting, though, is that if you think about it, the people in Jerusalem shouting Hosanna and welcoming Jesus, most of them, what they had in their mind, what, what they were expecting in their mind was probably the things that we have been reading in Revelation 19 and 20 and 21, right? They were not expecting Jesus to come riding on a donkey. They were expecting Jesus to come riding on a horse, right? Riding on a white horse. They were probably expecting the Jesus that we see in Revelation 19 where he is on a white horse and he has a sword, perhaps not with a sword coming out of his mouth, but, you know, with a sword and, and ready to come and conquer and destroy all of their enemies and and destroy the Roman Empire, and finally restore the kingdom to Israel, and for him to sit, to sit on the throne. And so, I think when they realize, oh, you know, he's coming on a donkey, and he comes humbly, and he doesn't seem to have any intentions to overthrow the Roman government, and oh, now he is about to be crucified. These are arguably the same people who first they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, and probably later they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, right? Because he did not meet their expectations. But we in Revelation, we come to the point where all of those expectations are finally met. We, we have learned from the book of Revelation and from the rest of the Gospels that before he would be crowned, before he would conquer, before he would come with his sword, first he had to go to the cross. First he had to go suffer on our behalf. He had to go and obey his father, go to the cross and die for our sins. He had to go to the cross before he would get his crown, before he would be glorified. Um, but we are here, we are in Revelation at the end of the book. Maybe, maybe some of you like uh, movies or, or stories where at the end, the good guy ends up dying or, you know, weird endings like that. And, and I actually like movies like that, you know, where the end is not all perfect and, and uh, everything, you know, just comes back to perfection or is even better. Uh, I, I actually do like movies where the good guy dies at the end. I don't, I'm thinking movies like maybe Gladiator or something like that. but. I think that 
every time there is a movie that is perfectly or a story that is perfectly close, that everything gets perfectly resolved, every single piece falls into place, and everyone lives happily ever after. I think there's something really, really satisfying about that. Now, the book of Revelation is not the kind of story where the good guy dies in the end. Uh, the book of Revelation and, and the entire gospel is a story where the good guy dies towards the middle, right? Jesus dies and then he rises again. And then everything just flows from there. All of the enemies are, are uh, handled or all of the enemies are dealt with systematically, right? God's people are dealt with. Uh, sorry, not God's people. Uh, God's enemies are dealt with. And the beast and the second beast are dealt with. And Satan is dealt with. Babylon is dealt with. And finally, we come to verse twenty, to chapter 21 and 22, where everything is just perfect. It's the aftermath of the final battle, and it's just ultimate perfection. It's the end of the story. So let's read uh, chapters chapter 21. We're going to read the whole chapter, and I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Revelation 21, verse 1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. 
and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, in length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelfth gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So growing up in church, uh, one of the things that I grew up with as a kid was this little book. I think it was called like the Book of Without Words or the Book of Colors or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was called. It was all in Spanish. But, well, it was no words. So, anyway. Uh, one of the things I remember is that one of the pages was gold or yellow. And it was supposed to represent the streets of gold of this new Jerusalem of this new city. Um, but I remember that, that whenever I thought of eternity, whenever I thought of the new Jerusalem, which by the way, I always just called it heaven, although now I realize that it's not heaven, but it's actually the new Jerusalem having come down to the new heaven and the new earth. But anyway, that's besides the point. Um, whenever I thought of heaven or the new Jerusalem, I always thought of it as uh, streets of gold, right? And I mean, sure, it says right there that, it, that you know, the streets were made out of gold. But I always had this picture in my mind of like, oh, wow, there's going to be this really cool mansion. And, and there's probably, you know, I'm going to hang out with all of my friends. And the streets are going to be made out of gold. And there's going to be all of these precious stones. And one of the things that I always thought about that, that you know, it was always kind of like my, this cool dream that I had is like, oh, maybe I'm going to be able to swim with sharks. You know, I guess that that's just kind of the idea that I had. Although it's kind of ironic that it actually says that the sea was no more. So maybe maybe we won't be able to swim with sharks. But 
my point in, in saying all of this is that my focus growing up was all about the golden streets and it was all about the, the materials that were used and the mansion and the sharks and all that stuff. But the focus of the Bible, the focus of the book of Revelation, what makes this new Jerusalem, what makes this new creation and this new city great is not necessarily the materials that it's made out of. What makes this place amazing is that the presence of God is there. The beauty of this place is that we are going to be with God in His uninterrupted presence. That's what makes this place amazing. Forget the gold, forget the sharks that probably won't even be there. It's the presence of God. And that really is, is the whole point of this, or not the whole point, but this, I believe is one of the main points of this passage, that God will be in this new city. So we, uh, John opens up this uh, section with a somewhat of a prologue. And the point of this prologue, verses 1 through 5, is to tell us that God is making all things new. That's the point. There's a comparison between the first things and the new things or the second things. The first things being the first earth, uh, the first heavens, um, the sea, uh, suffering, pain, death, etc. Those are the first things. And the new things are the things that God is making, that God has made in this beautiful city, in this new creation. But again, the point is that in this new city, in this new creation, God is there. So, just to give you a little bit of context, we come, we are at the very end of the story of redemption. Uh, in verse, in chapter nineteen, we saw the second coming of Jesus coming on a white horse and destroying his enemies. Uh, verse nineteen, the focus was more on the person of Jesus as a Messiah, as a conquering Messiah, and his conquering of the beast and the second beast. Then in chapter 20, as I explained last week, I believe that John is going back and starting to explain the same thing, but from a different perspective. And the focus of chapter 20 is, one of them is the destruction of Satan, the final uh, defeat of Satan. But another big theme in the book of, in, in chapter 20, is that the martyrs, is that the faithful believers throughout the entire church age who have remained faithful, who did not get the mark of the beast, when they die, whether it be they were beheaded because of their, their, faithful, uh, uh, their faithful witness to God, when they die, they will be, and they, I believe, they are in heaven right now, reigning with Christ. This is a heavenly reign. They are reigning with him. It says that I saw the souls of those who had died, and they are reigning in heaven with Christ. And as good as and amazing as that is, that is not the end of redemption history. So let me put it, let me put it even, uh, hopefully more clearly. Our, our friends, our family, who are believers who have died, I believe that they are enjoying the presence of God. They are with God. They are reigning with Christ. But that is not it. The final destiny of God's people is not being in heaven. 
I think that chapter 21 and 22 deal with the ultimate purpose of all of God's redemption, which is a new creation, a new city, a new people in the presence of God. And we can see this theme throughout the entire Bible, right? If you think about it, in Eden, God created the world. He created mankind. He put them in a garden, in a garden that was uh, like a sanctuary in the sense that God was with them and they had communion with God. They had uninterrupted communion with God. But when Satan, God's enemy, the ancient serpent, came and tempted uh, Eve and tempted Adam and they fell, then sin entered the world and death entered the world. And we could say that this beautiful garden and this beautiful creation that God had made was ruined because of sin. But that was just the beginning of the story. Right away, we are told that Satan is going to be defeated. Right away, the hope of a new creation is established. Right away, we see, okay, this, you know, this Garden of Eden was beautiful. Things have been messed up. How do we get back to being in perfect communion with God? Well, it takes the entire history of the Bible to tell us this story, but we are finally in the end. We are finally in the point where it says, all right, this is it. This is back, or not even back, but this is better than, than the Garden of Eden. So in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, Adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So right away, we learn that this new city is also uh, a bride. It's also a woman, which is in line with the description of Babylon, right? Because Babylon is also a woman. So Right away we see, okay, so there's, there's contrast here between Babylon, who, you know, which is described in, chapters, in chapter 17, and the new Jerusalem. And this new city is coming down out of heaven from God. So that's, that's something that, again, I, I always have to correct myself because, you know, when I think of the future, I say, when we are in heaven, when we go to heaven, when we are in heaven, well, not quite. I mean, if we die right now and you believe in Christ, yes, you're going to go to heaven right now. But at the end of history, after the second coming of Jesus, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is going to come down into this new heaven and this new earth. And finally, heaven and earth will be reunited and we're going to be in God's presence. Now, remember that the book of Revelation is a book of encouragement for the believers for the seven churches in Asia Minor, and for us as well. And so think about the encouragement that these believers who were being martyred, who were suffering for their faith in Christ, must have felt when they heard about this future, when they heard about this new creation in this new city. I mean, especially after, after reading everything that is happening to the first earth, right? I mean, all of, all of the... This, the, uh, 
the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, I imagine that the readers are like, okay, well, what's going on? Like all of earth is being destroyed and God's judgment is being poured out and Babylon is being destroyed and we are, call we are called to come out of Babylon. But into what? I mean, if we come out of Babylon, what, where do we go next? And I think John here is giving them the answer, well, come out of Babylon and enter the new Jerusalem. Come out of Babylon and think about this beautiful, incredible city that you will be a part of. Now, I do want to say here, and, and, and uh, I think this is a good implication for us, is that even though I personally believe, in, in, and from this pulpit we preach, that God's kingdom has already been inaugurated. Even though we believe that uh, Jesus is already seated on his throne, and he is reigning, and he is ruling, and God is putting his enemies under submission under his feet, I think it's good for us to remember that this is not it yet. And, and this passage makes it very clear, right? It says in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So even though Jesus is already seated on the throne, even though his kingdom has begun, even though his presence is with us here by his Spirit, even though we are his church and we belong to him, we are his people, I think we would be fooling ourselves if we thought, well, this is it. This is the end. No, this is not it. There is still death. There is still pain. There is still suffering. There is still sin. And we have to deal with sin every day. We have to deal with our sinful nature. We have to battle against our sin every day. God is with us. Yes, he is, he is among us through his spirit. But can you imagine how amazing, how incredible it will be to be in his presence, face to face, seeing his glory face to face, perfect communion with him. That's, I, that's what it says, right? It says, uh, behold, the dwelling place, verse 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The word here used for dwelling is actually the, the same word that is used in the Old Testament for tabernacle. And also John uses the same word in John 1.1 1, 1, when it talks about the word. It says the word became flesh and he dwelled among us. He tabernacled among us. And so I think we've done this multiple times, but, but just so that we don't forget we can, we can trace back the dwelling of God throughout the history of the Bible. In Eden, God was dwelling with mankind. God was with Adam and Eve. Then they messed up, they sinned. Uh, and then God still you know, chose a people for himself. He rescued them out of Egypt. His presence was with them. He commanded them to build a tabernacle so that his presence would be with them, so that he would be dwelling with them. And then once they entered into the promised land, they build a temple and God's presence was with them. And then when Jesus came, the same word that John uses, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. So now the presence of God is with Jesus. And then after Jesus died and he rose again, 
He sent his Holy Spirit, and now God dwells among us by his Holy Spirit. But at the end of this redemptive history, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem will come down to earth and God will dwell among his people uninterrupted. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I am making all of things new. This is God speaking. He says, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Sorry, I lost my I lost my spot here. Notice the same words that Jesus said when he was dying on the cross. Jesus accomplished our redemption by his blood on the cross and he said, it is done. He accomplished the work of our redemption. And now that God is speaking and he's speaking from this perspective of history being concluded, now God is saying, All of it is done. The whole thing is done. And notice that it is God who does it. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And I think this is also a good point of implication for us. What is the role of the church in history? What is the role of God's people in history? Well, as we have seen in the book of Revelation, we are witnesses to Christ. We are proclaiming the gospel. We are preaching the good news of the gospel. We are making disciples of all nations. And God, in his mercy, has allowed us to participate in his plan of redemption. But one thing that we need to remember is that God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the director of this drama of redemption. He is the author of this story of redemption. He planned all of this before the foundation of the world. It says that our our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. So, yes, we play a role in uh, uh, in his plan, in his sovereign plan of redemption, but it is ultimately God who brings about all of these things. He is sovereign, and he is the one who finishes this story. He's also the one from whom life comes, from whom life flows. And we're going to talk more about that in verse 22, sorry, in chapter 22 next week. Um, But for now, we're going to see verse 7. Verse 7 and 8 are interesting because here he talks about two different portions, two different inheritances for different people. In verse 7 it says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Remember that at the beginning of the letter he told all the churches, the one who conquers, I will give this. The one who conquers will reign with me. The one who conquers will drink from the, the, the river of living water. The one who conquers will, you know, and he makes all of these promises. Well, here is the fulfillment of all of 
those promises. He promises. He says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. All of these things that he just described, the new earth, the new heaven, the, the, the new temple, the new Jerusalem, being in the presence of God, all of these things will be the inheritance of the one who conquers. And notice the huge privilege that he gives us. He says, I will be his God and he will be my son. Man, that is incredible. If that does not motivate us to conquer, if that does not motivate us to live in obedience, to be faithful witnesses, to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, knowing that if we endure faithful till the end, God will say, you are my son. And I think, again, there are many other passages in Scripture where I believe the word son is intentional. Because if you remember in that culture, it was the son who got the inheritance. It was the son who inherited everything that belonged to the father. And so he's saying everyone, everyone who conquers, men and women, everyone who conquers, you will be my son in the sense that you will have everything that belongs to me. All of these things will be yours. But there's a different inheritance. There is a different portion in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. I mean, this is a no-brainer, right? Either you get the portion of being, God called, of being called God's son, Either you get the portion of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, being in God's presence, in God's tabernacle, or your portion is the lake of fire. Again, I mean, this, is, this should be a no-brainer. But the condition here is, if you conquer, this will be your inheritance. But if you continue in your sin, then your inheritance will be the lake of fire, along with the beast, with the false prophet, with Satan. Now, I think that this is something that we all should take extremely seriously. Because even though I 100% believe that those whom God saves can never be taken out of his sin, even though I strongly believe that those whom God saves uh, cannot lose their salvation, I do believe that we need to examine ourselves and look into these things and look into all of these sins and the sins of Babylon and the sins of the seven churches and the things that they are struggling with. And we need to ask God to examine our lives and show us if we are here with the cowardly, with the faithless, with the detestable, with the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, liars. And if you think about it, he was writing to seven churches. There were all sorts of people in these churches. And some of them might have been feeling very confident into thinking, oh, you know, I go to church every Sunday and I do these things and I read the Bible and and I associate myself with Christ. 
But, you know, this uh, woman Jezebel taught me that it's okay to participate in the in the meal sacrificed to the idols. And, and the Nicolaitans are teaching that it's fine to eat this food sacrificed to the idols and go to the parties as long as, you know, as long as I'm still belong to Jesus. And I think that we need to examine ourselves and ask, what are some of the lies that we are believing? What are some of the things that we are allowing in our lives that might be showing that maybe we do not belong to him at all. And so these two destinies, these two inheritance should really make us think. Now, he begins to describe the new Jerusalem in more detail. And if you look at chapter 17, the, the similarities are so uh, unmistakable. Let's read at, uh, quickly chapter 17, verse 1 through 5. Notice the description of Babylon in comparison to the description of the New Jerusalem. Then one of the seven angels, this is chapter 17, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and saw a woman sitting on a scarlet, sorry, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. So he has just described Babylon. Now compare it to Revelation 21 verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, same wording, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So first he was showing him Babylon, uh, the great harlot. And now he is showing him the new Jerusalem, which is the bride of Christ. And he carried me away in the spirit, just as he had done for Babylon. To a great high mountain. So in this case, it's a great high mountain. With Babylon, it was to a wilderness. Here is a high mountain. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So again, think about the readers. Think about them hearing Come out of Babylon because Babylon is going to be destroyed. Babylon is as good as dead. And then perhaps the reader is thinking, okay, but where are we going to go if we come out of Babylon? What is the alternative? And here he is giving them a picture of the future alternative. And notice, notice the comparison. Babylon is a harlot. The new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ. Babylon is uh, mocking 
God completely, right? From the very beginning of history at the Tower of Babel, how they wanted to be like God. They wanted to exalt themselves to the place of God. And then we have the new Jerusalem that is actually in the presence of God. Babylon wanted to be like God, but the new Jerusalem actually gets to be with God in the presence of God. The radiance of God is the glory of this city. As we're going to see later, Babylon takes advantage of the kings of the earth and takes advantage of the peoples of the earth. But the new Jerusalem receives glory from the kings of the earth. The kings of the earth come to this city and they bring their glory and they receive blessing from this city. Babylon, the great prostitute, is adorned with jewels and pearls and stones and things like that that make her attractive. But ultimately, it's all vain. It's all garbage. It's all sexual immorality and impurity and, and, and passion and sin. But the bride of Christ is adorned with these precious stones that represent the glory of God. So he's showing them a comparison here and saying, get out of Babylon and come into this amazing city. It reminds me of the comparison that, that Solomon gives in Proverbs with Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. Right? The two ladies are making a call and the two are inviting people to come in. Well, here's the same thing. Babylon is inviting people to come in and Babylon is inviting people to come and commit immorality with her. And the exhortation for you, the exhortation for us is, no, come out of Babylon. Do not engage with Babylon. Do not participate with her. Rather, enjoy the pleasure, the beauty, the, the glory of this amazing new city. Now, uh, the description of this new city, of the new Jerusalem, we're going we're gonna to touch on a few things. Uh, one of the things that we see is that the wall of the city, uh, verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So we see that it had a huge wall. So back in the day for those ancient cities, the way that you would recognize these cities was by their walls. Just like today, we recognize uh, cities by their skyline, right? If you see the skyline of Seattle, you might be able to recognize, especially, you know, when you see the Space Needle or when you see the skyline of New York or something like that. Well, in this case, cities were known by their walls. And so this city has a huge wall, which I believe speaks of the fact that it is protected, especially because the gates have angels and angels are usually protecting and are usually guarding God's glory. And so this city is a city that is protected. Nothing unclean, nothing evil, nothing bad can enter this city. Remember that Satan is in the lake of fire by this time. He is done. He has been defeated never to come back again. Nothing can threaten this city. Yet, it is a universal city in the sense that 
its gates face all four corners of the earth. Right? If you think about it, Eden, it was only the entrance was only facing one way. You could only enter one way and go out one way. But in this new city, the gates are facing all four corners of the earth, which I believe speaks of the universal nature of this city. In other words, everyone whose name is written in the name in, in the book of the Lamb is a part of this city. The book of Revelation is about the salvation of the nations, the salvation of the peoples. It is a book that talks about multiple people being saved and being turned into one people for God. We also see that this new Jerusalem is the fulfillment of the promises to Israel. We see that the gates are written or, or the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are written in the 12 gates. And I believe this speaks that this city is the final fulfillment of the promises that God made to the people of Israel. Remember, we talked about the, the, uh, the people receiving Jesus in Jerusalem and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they are probably expecting a kingdom like this. Well, finally, this is a kingdom where the nation of Israel, the true Israel, is a part of this kingdom. But notice that it has a twist, just like everything else we have been seeing in the book of Revelation, right? 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And then John looked and he saw a great multitude from all nations, from all peoples, from all uh, uh from all language, and, and um, I can't remember all the four. But anyway, it has a twist because then he says, 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So in this city, there are, no, there, there are not two different peoples of God. It's not like Israel is one of God's people, and then the church is another of God's people. But this city is included, or all of God's people are included into this city, represented by the 12 tribes of Israel and represented by the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now he goes on to measure the city, and I believe that this speaks about the city being a sanctuary. So it says that the city is a perfect cube. It's uh, in, in verse... 16, it says the city lies four square in length, the same as its width. Sorry, its length as the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia in length and width. Sorry, its length and width and height are equal. So this is a perfect cube. Now, if you think about it, this would be a very weird city. Right? Especially if it's 12,000 stadia. That's that's a weird shape for a city. And I believe that the significance of it, or at least part of the significance of this, is that it is reminding us of the Holy of Holies in the temple, in the temple that Solomon built. The Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies was the place where only the high priest could enter once a year to atone or to offer a sacrifice for the atonement of all of the people of Israel, and he came in, and and he was wearing a, a, a an interesting uh, breast piece with uh, diff, twelve different precious stones, and he would enter there, and he would offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of God's people. So 
So what's with this new Jerusalem? What it's, what's with this new city being a perfect cube? Well, the whole city is a sanctuary. The whole city is where the presence of God is. In the Holy of Holies, in the, in the Old Testament temple, the presence of God was limited to this particular cube. Only once a year could someone go in and be in the presence of God. But in this new city, everyone who lives in the city can participate in the presence of God. No priest necessary because Jesus, our high priest, already died for us and he saved us and he made it possible for us to be in this new sanctuary city. Now, it talks about different uh, precious stones. And without getting into much detail, if, if you want to talk more about this, uh, I'm happy to talk more about it. But without getting into too much detail, these stones are believed to be stones that uh, are coming from the Garden of Eden. In fact, in um, Ezekiel, 20, Ezekiel 28, nine of these stones are mentioned as having been from uh, the Garden of Eden. And so again, I believe that this is showing that, that this new city is a new Garden of Eden, but way better, way, uh, uh, yeah, just incredible, way better. Um, but it also talks about the glory of God. When, when uh, John is talking about the bride in chapter 19, it shows us that the bride is, is dressed up in fine linen, and we learn that, that uh, the fine linen is her works. But here in Revelation 21, we see that, yes, even though what the bride has to bring to the picture are her works, Ultimately, what gives this new city, what gives this bride glory is the glory of God. It's the precious stones that represent the glory of God. If you think about it, at the beginning of the book, God is described as, as looking like Jasper and, or not God, but his glory as, you know, looking like Jasper and, and like a crystal or like, like um, gold that was clear as a crystal. And we have the same thing here. We have all of these precious stones that speak about the glory of God. And so once again, I go back to, my, to, to what I said at the beginning. I used to think and, be, and say, oh, wow, what a, what a great place to be where the streets are made out of gold and there is a mansion and there are all of these precious stones. And yes, that is all incredible. But ultimately, what makes this city amazing is the glory of God. What makes this city shine and be so incredible and so appealing is that God is there and his radiance, his presence is there. Now, every, all throughout the book of Revelation, John has been saying, and I saw this, and I saw that. I saw an angel, and I saw heaven, and I saw etc. But notice in verse 22, there is a little bit of change. It says, and I saw no temple. So there's one thing that John doesn't see. And I think he, he probably mentions it because he was expecting to find one. Maybe. 
We don't know. But I'm guessing that, that he was expecting to find a temple, especially if you look into, into the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, where temples are prophesied. And then he gets to this new city and he does not see a temple to his surprise. But then he explains, I, he explains, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. This city has no temple because God is right there. The temple was the place where you could go and commune with God and be in the presence of God. But this city does not need a temple because God is right there. God is the temple. Jesus is the temple. The city has also no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This world is, there is so much darkness in this world. When Jesus came, during his first coming, he came to a, to, a work, to a world full of darkness. And one of the things he said is, I am the light of the world. And when all of God's redemptive history is complete, finally there will be light all over the place. It won't be this little light, you know, like the song we sing, this little light of mine, I will, I'm going to let it shine. No, it's not going to be little light. It's going to be full-blown light to the point that there will be no need for sun, for moon, for anything like that because God and the Lamb are what bring light. And notice the comparison, right? The kings of the earth have been mentioned all throughout the book, the kings of the earth come and, and uh, uh, they are ruled by Babylon. The kings of the earth eventually uh, rebel against Babylon. The kings of the earth rebel against God and they are destroyed. And now these other kings of the earth, now they are bringing glory to the new Jerusalem. And then notice, but nothing unclean, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So like we said earlier, this city is fully protected. The presence of God protects this city. The presence of God protects it and keeps everything unclean from entering this city. And yet again, this is a warning for us in saying, okay, no one who does what is detestable or false can enter this city, but only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And so I think it is extremely clear here. How do we enter the new Jerusalem? How do we make sure that this is our inheritance? Well, it is through the Lamb. At the beginning of the book, it is the Lamb who, was, who is described as slain. It is the Lamb who redeemed a people for God so that they would be priests to God, His Father. And so the only way that we can enter this place is if our names are written in the, in the book of the Lamb. The only way that our names can be written in the book of the Lamb is if we trust Jesus. 
if we believe in his work for us on the cross. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not entrust yourself to him, if you do not repent of your sin and say, Jesus, I need you to save me, then your destiny will not be in the new Jerusalem, but rather in the lake of fire. The only way to enter the new Jerusalem is if your name is written in the book of life. Now, to, to conclude, I just want to mention one more, um, one more word of, of encouragement. I think that, uh, at least for me, as I think of this glorious future, of this amazing city, I cannot help but think, man, this, this, uh, we often speak of the church as, you know, being these, this glorious thing and God's presence being with us and the Holy Spirit being with us. But then we look at this description and, and I can help but think, man, like, it doesn't look like it. I mean, you know, we see little, little, uh, lights and, and, or shadows of the things that are going to be. But sometimes I think that we can be tempted to be disappointed with the church. Sometimes we can be uh, tempted to, to say, well, is this it? But one of the passages that I, that I really, really enjoy and that I find a lot of encouragement is, uh, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, and I believe that this passage is speaking of the church today. And notice how the author of Hebrews describes the church. In verse 20, 20, uh, 22, he says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So look at how the author of Hebrews is describing our reality. And so let us not be discouraged. Let us instead look at our future, look at our glorious future, and look at how we are already, we already have a foretaste of those things. And also let us not be discouraged with the church. Let us remember that God is saving a people for himself. He is saving a community of people for himself. And let us remember that if we have trusted in Jesus, our names are written in the book of life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful image of the new Jerusalem, of this city 
in which you dwell perfectly. Thank you for the promise of a new creation, a redeemed creation and a redeemed humanity of which we will be a part of if we if our names are written in the book of life by the work of your son Jesus. God, we praise you. We thank you for your sovereignty. We thank you that you are the one who is sovereign. You are the Alpha and the Omega, and you are accomplishing all of these things according to your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.